We've been doing this series uh, in Christmas here. We're calling it Repeat the Sounding Joy. Uh, we, we're looking at these four songs in the book of Luke. The first two chapters, we see four individuals who are singing these songs to Jesus and about Jesus. And we want to, 2,000 years later, uh, be repeating the same songs of joy that they were singing at that time. Today we're going to talk about Zachariah's song. It's a song of hope. And so I want to talk about hope a little bit today. Um, According to our dictionary's definition, hope is the following. It's a feeling of expectation. So so I have this expectation that something's going to happen. It, It might happen. And it's a desire for a certain thing to happen. So I think something, I've expected to happen, I, I, I desire it to happen, and then finally it's a feeling of trust, so I, I do think that it, that it will happen. Now, I want to get real with you right away here this morning, okay, just raw honesty, confession time, I hate, at Christmas time, online shopping. Just needed to get that off my chest, all right, just needed to be able to say that to you, um, and the reason that I hate it is because I hate I hate waiting, okay? I hate waiting for these things to get here. And you watch, you have that, you know that online tracker that you can get on that's full of lies? Like, for example, you notice how they always stick stuff in Federal Way, Washington for like weeks at a time? You know what I'm talking about? I don't even think there is an actual place called Federal Way, Washington. I just think that's the way the post office saying, we actually have no idea where your package is. Right, we lost it, we're going to say it's there, we don't know, right? And so here I am, I'm hoping, hoping that this package will come before Christmas so that my niece or my nephew doesn't hate me for life, hoping that it's the right size or the right color because I don't have time to return it, right? I realize these are first world problems. This is where I'm at, okay? So just, just work with me here. We, you and I, man, we can so often be so bad at waiting, See, we we have these expectations in our lives. There are certain things that I want to happen, but I often don't trust that they will. And maybe you're looking at your life this Christmas season, and if we're honest, this can be be a very difficult time. It's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. It can also be the most difficult time of the year. And maybe maybe you're in a marriage right now where, where you're hoping, hoping that things get better. Maybe you have a relationship with one of your children, and you're hoping for reconciliation. You're you're hoping that things will be the way that they're supposed to be. Maybe there's a sin in your life that's been entangling you for years, and you're hoping and waiting, tired of waiting, to find victory and freedom. But man, we're going to meet a character in today's story that had to wait his entire life for two different things that he was hoping for. But he discovered something about his God, something about our God that we need to know this morning. Some of us need to remember we've forgotten. Some of us need to believe it. And when we put our hope in God, unlike the federal post office, (laughs) our hope will not be met with disappointment. It's what we believe. That's why we're gathered here. Now, last week, we looked at the first of these four songs. We looked at the, the song of Mary, the song of humility. We said that worship starts, necessarily starts with humility. We humble ourselves before our God, and what we're going to find is for those who will humble themselves before their God, Zechariah is going to tell us that there is some hope. There's some hope. There's a great hope. And this, this song is also known as the Canticle of Zachary, which I think is a way cooler name for it. And there's also the Latin expression, the Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, 
so I'm probably butchering. It's the Latin, which means, blessed be the God of Israel, which is the opening line in Zechariah's song. But before we get to it, we need to do some background work to understand why it is Zechariah sings what he sings. So if you remember, uh, we're going to start here in Luke chapter 1. Verses will be up on the screen uh, this morning, primarily in the ESV, English Standard Version. But we do some background. This looks familiar, right? Our motions, again, I'm not going to make us do them. Okay, we're done with that series. But in our context, we're coming out of 400 years of silence where Israel's been waiting for, to hear from God and for this long-promised deliverer to come and set them free from Roman oppression and from the darkness of their sin. And now we're going to see that God's going to start to speak. He's going to break the silence. And we saw last week he breaks it to a young virgin named Mary. And today we're going to see him speak through an angel to the man named Zechariah. And in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, he was an elderly man. He was a priest. He had, he had a wife, Elizabeth, who was also from a priestly line. And he goes on to say in verse 6, They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, there's a reason that Luke underlines this here. And what he's not saying... When it says the word blamelessly, he's not saying that they are sinless. That would go against what we know in Scripture, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What he's underlining here, though, is these are people who have walked with their God in obedience, looking forward to the coming deliverer who will forgive them for their sins when they've disobeyed. And the reason that he highlights this is because of what he says in verse 7. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, we need to understand the culture at the time. There was this stigma that the culture placed on those who were not able to have children. And they saw them as, as though they were sinful. They must have done something wrong. And this was a curse because children were seen as a blessing. So if you didn't have children, then God had cursed you. And here are Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah, elderly people with no children. And Luke wants to point out to us, this was not because of, their, of sin in their lives. And we're going to see why that's so important here in just a moment. Now, Zechariah, as a priest, he was one of 18,000 priests at the time in Israel, most scholars would, would, would say. And they, they had these 18,000 priests divided into 24 divisions. So it's about, my math would say, it's about 750 priests in each division. And each of these divisions, they, they were scattered throughout all of the nation of Israel. But they would take a division, and twice a year, they would serve, they would come to Jerusalem... And serve in the temple. Now, this was a, the biggest honor that you could receive. Is to be remember, this is the, where the temple is, which symbolized where the presence of God was. And at that time, that's where they saw the presence of God. So, if you wanted to go commune with God, worship God, you had to come to the temple. So, they were worshiping in the temple, and, and they would serve these. If you were in that particular division and yours was chosen, you would serve two weeks per year. So, it's kind of like the National Guard, right? A weekend a month, two weeks a year. And they would go, and for two, one week at a time, twice per year, they would serve at the temple. So here's what it says in, in, in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, so this is the time, one of those two times the year, when his division is serving at the temple, Zechariah, 750 of them. It says, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and, and burn incense. So let's, let's unpack what he's saying there. What they would do is they would choose one of those priests, so one of the 750 priests would come into the temple, and he would burn, at the, uh, burn incense at this altar, called the Altar of Incense. <laughs> Pretty aptly named. And, and what they would do is they would burn this incense, and it was this representation of the people of Israel's prayers 
to God, specifically a prayer for the coming deliverer that God had promised. So the whole nation, every morning and every evening, would pray this prayer to God, send us this deliverer. And this person here at the altar was the one representing the people on the behalf of God with this incense and praying these prayers. Now, how would they choose the priest to go up here? It says they would cast lots. And this was a, this was a way that they would, they would take these stones or sticks and they would put these little markings on them. And each, of, each marking represented one of the eligible contestants. So here, you know, Zachariah, maybe he's those weird-looking quotation marks or something. And so they would, like, either Yahtzee-style, kind of roll them out on the floor, and however they landed in a certain pattern, or they'd kind of draw them out of a hat or whatever. And then however they decided, they would choose that stone and say, God has told us who it is that's going to go into the temple to burn the incense. And Zachariah's name has been chosen. He looks down at the stone. He says, that's my marking. Now, you have to understand, once your name was drawn, it would never be drawn again. It was, it was put out from the, from the lots. So you only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow, right? We got Eminem fans in this house, sinners. So if your name was chosen, this was, this was the one time in your whole life I mean, this is, this is the, the grand, you, you could not get a higher stage for one of the priests than in this very moment. So you have all of the people of Israel, those gathered in Jerusalem outside of the temple praying. You've got people in their towns all across the country praying together. And this priest at the altar of incense is the focal point of the entire nation. He's the go-between between the entire people and God. Remember, he's standing in front of that curtain and behind that curtain is the Holy of Holies, representing the presence of God. So here is Zechariah. If this was not already an intense moment enough for him, verse 11, it says, oh, and, and they would be called rich and holy for the rest of their lives. If you did this one time, the rest of your life, there would be this honor. It was, it was as though, I was thinking about it as a parallel for us, like when, when one person is chosen to light the Olympic torch, and the, entire eye, the eyes of the entire nation are on this one person. That's what's going on here with Zechariah. The honor, the rest of his life, known as an honorable, rich, and holy person because he was chosen by God to do this act. And at this climactic moment, an angel shows up. Verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. <laughs> Can you imagine what would be going through Zechariah's head? says he was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Yeah, no kidding. And he grabs this, the, the priest manual and he's like, this is, there's nothing in here about an angel, right? I'm supposed to be burning incense. Now this angel shows up and he, and he freaks out as always is the case, which to be fair is exactly what I would do if an angel showed up to me. And the angel responds as always, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. Now, there's two things going on here. He says, you're, you're going to have a son. <laughs> now, we never see recorded. This, is not, this, this wasn't prophesied beforehand. What, what is the prayer? Not only does the angel tell him, you're going to have a son in your late, probably 90s or something, they don't tell us exactly how old he is. But he also says, your prayer has been heard. Now, now what's the prayer here? The prayer here is the, is the prayer that he's offering at the altar of incense. This prayer to God, asking for this deliverer to come. And this angel says, Zechariah, for hundreds of years, priests have been standing exactly where you're standing and burning incense like you're burning right now, praying for this deliverer to come. And now, after long last, the prayer has been heard. And in your midst, I'm here to tell you, 
the Messiah is on the move. I mean, how overwhelming would it be to get all this news at once? I'm going to have a baby? And, and, and then he goes on to say in verse 17, this baby of yours, he, this John, he'll go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He says, your son is going to make way for this coming Messiah. He's not just any son. He's the one in the spirit of Elijah who's going to make way for the way of the Lord, turn people's hearts back to God in repentance. And so here's Zechariah's response, verse 18. He said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I don't know if you're allowed drinks in the temple, but this is basically a spit take, right? <laughs> he, said, he said, come again? He said, he said what's going to happen? Like, have you seen my wife and I? Like, do you have any idea how old we are? I think you need some angelic prescription eyewear. Because, because here's the reality. The only stick my wife is taking into the bathroom is her cane to help her in and out. She's not going in there with a pregnancy test. We are old. Very, very old. He goes, I'm going to need a sign. I need you to prove it. I do not believe what you're saying. And the angel responds, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I love the angel's response. Dude, I'm an angel standing in front of you, speaking to you, and you need a sign. Like, what in the world? And he goes on in verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The angel says, because you didn't believe, for the next nine months, you will be the quietest priest on the block. And can you imagine? He goes back out. I mean, after burning this incense, the, the, the climax of his whole career, and all the people are waiting as he comes back out of the temple, and he can't speak. And he's trying to, like, sign to them what just happened. I mean, like, how would you? And, he's, and then the next nine months, we fast forward. Zechariah, unable to speak after all this is going down. And we're going to fast forward to the moment when he's holding this little baby, John the Baptist, in his arms. What would he say? And what would you say after all this? Nine months of waiting and praying and being humbled before your God. And what we're going to look at is the, are the words, the praise that overflows from the lips of Zechariah. We're going to look, oh, there's my nine month silent emoji. We're going to look at the song of Zechariah. Oh, no, wait. Um, sorry, got, I got thrown off here. Uh, Isaiah, nine months without being able to speak, called my, mind, my, my, my nephew, Kobe, uh, at So High. He's a sophomore. And uh, he, they all had to give up something for a week, something they had to go without. And uh, Kobe decided uh, he chose to go without speaking for a week, to which his parents were like, yes, right? <laughs> and can you imagine, can you imagine going an entire week without speaking, Okay. I think as a Frankino, I would probably just die. Right? I, don't, I don't think I'd be able to do it. I just take me home. What else am I here for? Um, but here's Zechariah for nine months, silent before his God. And we have to understand, God will take us through these periods of time, whether it's disobedience or whatever God is to that point. He's going to take us through these periods of silence, maybe where we can't speak or we can't hear from him, but he's doing a work in our heart. And he's preparing him for this exact moment 
as he holds his baby in his arms because he has some words that you and I need to hear this morning. And last week, I had Lindsay come up, a young pregnant mother, uh, to read Mary's song. And I was thinking about, for this week, a man in our church who, like Zachariah, a bit longer in the tooth, faithfully serving our Lord in full-time ministry for his whole life. And to me, the, the choice was, was pretty clear. And I've asked Pastor Chuck if, if he'd come up and, and he'd read for us Zachariah's song. And I thought how appropriate he had asked if his son, John, <laughs> would come and help him up to help him read this song of Zachariah and his son, John. Pastor Chuck, the words from Zechariah's song of hope. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Thanks, Pastor Chuck. So what I hear there, Zachariah's lips, after nine months of silence, says four following things. Number one, that's my God. That's my God that did this. Number two, that's our Savior. Number three, that's my boy. And number four, that's our hope. That's what I want to draw from, dig into each of those. First of all, that's my God. Notice what he says in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, two things I see in this first verse that we need to know. First of all, Jesus is God. Notice what he says. He has visited. Who has visited? Follow the line. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Who has come? Who has visited? Who has redeemed? God himself explicitly here through the Holy Spirit, Zachariah says Jesus is God and he's come and he's redeemed us. And only God could rescue us. Only God could die in our place. Second thing I see in this verse is that God is always faithful to his promises. Notice here that he says he has visited and he has redeemed. We're in the past tense. Nine months ago, Zachariah refused to believe Elizabeth, his very old wife, could conceive and have a child. And now, nine months later, God's done a work in his heart, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is so confident of God's redeeming work that he puts it in the past tense. He says he has visited and has redeemed. This is Luke chapter 1. Jesus doesn't come until Luke chapter 2. 
And then he doesn't redeem his people. He doesn't die and resurrect until the end of the book of Luke. But what John says here is it is as though he already has. It's like if I'm playing pickup basketball with my brother, who I'm so much better than. Uh, he's not here to defend himself. And before the game even starts, I look at Jeremy, come up to the court. I say, Justin has visited this court, and he has dominated you, right? So I'm just calling my shot. Before the game even happens, it's as good as though I've already beaten you, okay? He'd love that. He would just love that. Over the last nine months, Zachariah has been enrolled into the school of faith, and he's learned a valuable lesson. And the lesson is this. God lives outside of time. And if he's promised something, if he's told us something is going to happen, if he says my son will visit and redeem these people, it is as good as though he already has done it. That he already has visited and already has redeemed. And we'll see why that's so important at the end of our time. Number two, that's our, our savior. That's our savior. He says in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now this horn, and we got to talk about this, this is a fulfillment of, of prophecy. Isaiah says this himself. He's going to show the mercy promised to our fathers, our ancestors. We start going back up the ancestry. And to remember his holy covenant, the covenant he made with his people, which actually traces all the way back to who? Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that I'm going to bless you, and through all nations will I bless through your coming seed, Jesus. This is the promise. And what does he mean by horn? This isn't just like a weenie trumpet. Jesus is coming, right, something like that. This, this horn is a reference to a, a bull. It's a symbol of, of strength and might. Like you, you ever, you know, he says, this is a fulfillment of, of Psalm 132, where he says, there I will make a horn to sprout for David, which is what Zechariah references here too, from the line of David. He's going to be an eternal king from the line of David. And, and when he talks about these, these horns, have you ever been up close and personal to a bull? Okay. Other than maybe our Diamond Dam Ranch crew, right? I mean, like some, many of us are not familiar with, with bulls and, and how strong they are. But you, anybody volunteer to get into the ring with that thing? Okay. You, you want to tangle with, with a bull, that thing would mess you up, right? And this symbol in the Old Testament of a horn was one of strength, was one of might. And Zechariah is saying this promised king, and a horn also indicated royalty in Hebrew culture. He says, this king is mighty and strong, but mighty and strong to do what? Well, go back to that moment when Zechariah was in the temple offering the incense. And then you look at the incense altar, and you notice there are four things on the corners of the altar. They're horns. They're horns. And when God was telling his people how you're going to construct these things, he told them what was going to happen with the altar, specifically with the horns. Travel back in time to Exodus. He says, once a year, Aaron, the high priest, the representation of the people, must purify the altar. How? By smearing its horns with blood. I don't know about you, but usually the way to purify something, to make it clean, is not by smearing blood on it. He says he's going to purify the altar by smearing its horns with blood from the offering made to purify the people from their sin. He says you're going to kill an animal on the behalf of the people. You're going to take the blood. You're going to smear it on the horns. Why? It's going to show that this blood one day will be mighty, will be strong to save the people of Israel and of the world from their sin. What did Jesus come to do? He came to defeat 
the enemy, sin and death. And how did he come to do it? By shedding his blood. And it's the blood of Jesus that is the horn of salvation, the power to set you and I free from the power of sin, a forgiving power so strong, Zachariah says it's as though he's already visited and already redeemed. But there's another aspect to this salvation and this rescue that Zechariah anticipates here, and I need us to see this. In verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, serve God, without fear. He's referring to these enemies. He's not just, it's not just a euphemism for sin. He's talking about their, their physical, literal an- enemies, the, the Romans. Put yourself in the mindset of a first century Jew for a moment. These people, for centuries, have felt completely abandoned by God. After God had walked with them and spoke through prophets and judges and kings, now, for 400 years, he has given them the silent treatment. They haven't got a single visit, a vision, a single prophecy. Not only that, but they're enslaved to the people of Rome. And, and this is just the latest of many world powers that have completely impressed and enslaved the people of Israel. So, see, think about this for a second. For you and I, we, we live in the United States of America. For, we're 240 years old as a country-ish. We've been a world power since the late 1800s. Now, for, that means for over 100 years now, we, we have been at the kind of the top of the political power food chain, right? So all of us in this room today, we've known nothing in our lives but relative political peace and security and power. So for us, when I've never woken up in the morning and wondered if myself or one of my family members will be taken away as a slave or be killed by some oppressive regime, Right? I mean, you imagine if China or Russia or another country came and invaded us and tossed out our own government, suppressing all of our ideals and our self-rule. I mean, man, we, it's so hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of, of an Israelite in first century AD. Being sla- enslaved and oppressed and handed from empire to empire like a baton. Now, it's largely because of their own sin, right? Their disobedience to God. They broke the covenant. And God said, this is what would happen. This is the curse that would come if you disobeyed me. But man, can't we relate to that? Our own disobedience resulting into our own slavery unto sin. So they're looking for hope in the midst of oppression. We sing the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That's that's a deeper meaning to these people. But political freedom, it wouldn't come in Christ's first return, would it? This is a promise. This is a promise, an Old Testament promise that will be fulfilled, but not until Jesus comes back the second time. These people were looking forward to it, and and Zacharias says, there's a hope. There's a hope coming. He takes us to number three. Uh, That's my boy. Now, that's my boy. Look at what he says. And you, child, he turns, and he looks down at this baby that he's holding in his arms. He says, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now notice that the first words of Zechariah, what are the first eight verses, who are the first eight verses all about? They're about Jesus. And you imagine holding your firstborn in your arms, especially after waiting for more than 80 years and nine months of not being able to speak. And now you finally have this baby boy in your arms. And the first thing out of his mouth is not, man, look how big he is. Man, look how beautiful he is. The first thing he says is, look at my God. 
look at Jesus. See, John, is John special? Of course he is. He's, faithful. He's, he's fearfully and wonderfully created by God. He's made in his image, and he's this beautiful, miraculous promise to his parents. But, but John's value and significance are primarily found, just like yours and mine, are primarily found in who Jesus is. And you go to the first chapter of the next gospel, John. This is what the, the apostle John says, that John, John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John's whole job is to point everybody to Jesus because he's the one that'll satisfy. He's the one that's worthy of worship. And John would come and he would prepare the sinful hearts of Israel for the coming of this horn of salvation, for the one that would forgive their sins by the shedding of his blood. And man, during those nine months of silence, Zechariah's dark heart has been prepared for this coming light, which leads us to how Zechariah closes this song. He says, that's our hope. That's our hope. Because in the light, so the sentence before, the forgiveness of sins, he's forgi he's forgive your sins because, why? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Zacharias says, it's been dark, but I can see the sun popping up over the hill to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He uses this beautiful imagery of light and darkness talking about peace, and for hundreds of years, his people, Zachariah's people, have sat in darkness, spiritually, politically, but now he says the sun's rising, the sun's rising, and he's going to bring light and peace, that we're now going to be able to see the, the way to peace, and, and this points us, this whole time, just like Mary's song, he's been alluding to all of these Old Testament prophecies, and this one takes us right to Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before, he says, the people who walk in darkness will one day, the day Zechariah is saying these words, will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And what is that light that will shine? Right? They're picturing this king who's going to come riding in on this white horse and start whooping some Romans. But, but how does this light shine? It says, for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The world is going to change, not on a throne, but in a manger. And he says, this baby will be given many, many names, but one will be the Prince of Peace. Why did he come? Why did he come to give us light when we're so dark and rebellious? Why did he come to give us peace when we are so fractured and turned our back on him so many times? Well, Zechariah told us, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. That word mercy in the Greek, it meant compassion. And it's a weird phrase in the Hebrew mindset. It actually meant the bowels of mercy, which is kind of a weird place to have mercy, but let's be honest, sometimes our bowels need some mercy, right? Um, the bowels of mercy were the, in the Hebrew mindset were the seat of, of their emotion, the most tender spot. They're saying in the very core of who God is, he has for us mercy. That's why he sent his son, which reminds us of what verse? It's probably the most famous verse that's ever been known in the Bible. For God so loved the world. That's why he gave his son. And Zechariah says, this is the sun that's come. And the sun will rise because the son of God has come down and will die and will rise again. So I want us to finish here by making this very personal. And if we're honest, 
like Zechariah, it's easy to look around at our circumstances and say, God, you're going to do what? You're going to do what? I mean, Zechariah goes, my wife and I, in our age, are going to have a, a child? I'm going to need some proof, because I don't just believe your words. I'm not going to take you at your word. You and I, maybe you're sitting in your seat this morning, and you're going, you're, you're saying that my wife and I, my spouse and I, could one day experience marital peace? I'm going to need some proof. You're saying that I could one day be reconciled to my child, that we could have a healthy relationship. I'm going I'm to need some proof. You're telling me that this sin that I've been enslaved to my whole life for countless years, that there's hope. I'm going to need some proof. But just as the Holy Spirit told Zechariah, man, it is as good as though God has already come, has already redeemed his people. There's some promises to us that are coming in the future, and yet they're as good as though they're already in the past. And there's this awesome verse in, in Romans chapter 8, and there's some words we need to unpack, but you look at this. It says, for those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So here's what this verse is, is saying, essentially. God predestined beforehand. He decided beforehand. He promised that this is going to happen. What he promises that every believer in Jesus will be conformed into his image. And what that means, in other words, you and I will become more and more like Jesus until the day, the beautiful day, when we see him face to face and we are just like our big brother. This is a promise. He's, he's talking about spiritual growth, right? Sanctification, the, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And what he then goes on to say in verse 30, and this is amazing, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we could spend months on this verse, but here's what I want us to draw out. He says, those he predestined chose beforehand to be made like Jesus. He called, he invited them to be his children. And then he justified them. That's talking about the moment of salvation. We place our faith in Jesus and we are declared right in God's sight because of the horns of uh, the horn of salvation, the blood of Jesus shed in our place. He says, those who he has justified, he has glorified. Past tense. Notice each of these words is in the past tense. Now, this word glorified, it's a term that describes the finished product of you and I. That it's saying that one day in heaven, when we're looking Jesus in the eyeballs, John says when we see him, we'll be just like him. Meaning there'll be no more sin in our lives that will look and act just like Jesus. Can you wait for that day, the hope that is there for each of us? And just like he told Zechariah, it's as though Jesus has visited and has redeemed. He says those he has justified, he has glorified. A man by the name of John Whitmore had this to say about the word glorified here. He says glorified is in the past tense. Why? Because it is this final, this final step is so certain that in God's eyes, it is as good as done. God completes his plan without slippage. So here's what you and I need to desperately need, need to know and believe and remember this morning. No matter how dark your life seems right now, no matter how great the sin is that you're, you're walking in, no matter how no matter how tall the mountain looks, no matter how impossible the situation seems. I don't know what you're going through, 
But, but the promise here to the believer, the follower of Jesus, is that the promise for God to finish what he started, the good work in your heart of making you more and more like Jesus, freedom and forgiveness of sin, that process is as, though, is as good as though it has already happened. God speaks about it here in the past tense. That's the promise. That's the promise. He sees outside of time what you and I don't see. Because in the most tender recesses of his heart, he has set his compassion for you through his son to die in your place, to offer forgiveness and peace on earth. And that's the hope. That's the hope that you and I have this Christmas season, is that maybe all you see right now is a mess. All you see is darkness, and we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. But when all we see is a mess, God sees the finished product. And what God has started, he will finish. And you and I can patiently trust him. I don't know if my package will arrive before Christmas Day. But I do know, I do know that Jesus has come. He has visited, he has redeemed, and he has glorified us. You want to repeat the sounding joy this morning, the echo of Zechariah's song of hope. Let's pray together and then we'll continue to worship this God. Father, we thank you that you looked on us with tender mercy, compassion in the deepest recesses of your heart, that you sent Jesus to this earth to visit and redeem us, to bring light into a dark world, to bring peace into a fractured world. God, I, I pray for each of us this morning. Man, we're coming from brokenness. Some of us are, are in marriages or in, in, in relationship issues, caught up in sin, and we're all over the map. That each of us, you look at us and you see not our weakness, but you see Jesus, and you accept us because of Jesus' work and because of what he's done for us. You're going to finish what you start. Would you give us the grace to believe those words and to have a hope and to patiently wait through the times of silence like Zechariah that we would believe that those that you've justified, you're going to glorify, that we're going to look at Jesus one day, we're going to see him, and we're going to be just like him. There is a hope. And I pray for those in this room that don't trust Jesus as their Savior, that they would trust Jesus as their Savior. For those who have forgotten these words that they would remember and that each of us as your body would do the good work of pointing each other back to that hope, the light of the world, the forgiver, the forgiver of our sins. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.